And now please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if you notice, our order of service now takes a bit of a turn from the uh, first half of the service. It's very tempting for Christians as we enter Holy Week to celebrate Palm Sunday, to march, albeit hopefully a little bit more in a more organized manner, uh, around a meeting house or outside, to wave your palms, to celebrate with shouts of joy. And then if you don't show up for Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday services, you go straight from shouts of joy on Palm Sunday to shouts of joy on Easter morning. And in the process, you cut out a fairly significant part of the gospel story. The passion narrative, the narrative of Jesus' arrest, his trial, uh, his suffering, and his death, that passion narrative forms the largest chunk of the gospel of all four gospels. And it's something that unless we consider on this day, Palm Sunday, that's also called Passion Sunday, uh, unless we consider it on this day, we run the risk of missing an essential part of what it means to be Christians. So today, I'd like to turn our attention to at least this one part of the Passion narrative. It's a story that I'm sure is familiar to you. After the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples, he then went out to the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, again, is that uh, mountain that raised up ground uh, that's across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. So from the Mount of Olives, Jesus and the disciples could look over the valley and see the great temple uh, complex just in front of them. And while Jesus was in the Mount of Olives, he, he got space from them. He decided to walk away, as the text says, about a stone's throw. And then he gets down and he prays. And he prays that the time of trial that he's about to go through, that he knows he's about to go through, he prays that that might not be his fate, that somehow he might be able to avoid it. Now, you notice an interesting thing in our text for the Gospel of Luke, and I'm actually quite happy that it's noted this way in the order of service. If you look in your reading for a moment that's in your order of service for the Gospel of Luke, you'll find there are actually two verses, verses 43 and 44, that have double brackets around them. And it might have uh, made you a little bit curious as you're reading it through. Why on earth are there double brackets around these two verses? What's with that? Well, the reason for that is that those verses almost certainly are not in the original account of the Gospel of Luke. In our earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke, those two verses don't appear. There is no verse 43 and 44 in earlier accounts of the Gospel of Luke. They were added in later by scribes and copyists. They were added in later by Christians. And the question is why? Why would they add that in? Why put in those two verses? The first verse, verse 43, talks about an angel coming to strengthen Jesus. And the second verse, verse 44, talks about Jesus weeping tears of anguish as though they were drops of blood. Why were they added in? Well, in the second century, by the time you get to the second century A.D., here's the best guess that scholars give. By the time you get to the second century A.D., uh, you had a lot of people who uh, put Jesus on a very high pedestal. 
One of the common ways of looking at Jesus uh, became known as modalism or Sabellian, uh, the Sabellian heresy, what later was called Sabellian heresy at the time. And what that argued was that Jesus really was God the Father, the same as God the Father. It's, just, it's almost like uh, God puts on a different mask for Jesus, but it's really, the same, it's really the same thing. So Jesus is God of God. And so <clears throat> at one point, God puts on the Jesus mask, and at other points, God might put on the God the Father mask, or God the first person, the Trinity mask. But fundamentally, they're the same, they're the same thing, they're the same person. And so as the theory goes, when Jesus is in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane, or when Jesus is on the cross, it's actually God that's there, and the suffering is not really real, because Jesus is not really a human being, Jesus is God. It just looks like a human being. Again, this, is, this became known as a modalist heresy. And the scholars that are putting in these verses 43 and 44 are putting them in there in order to try and combat this heresy. In order to try and emphasize the fact that Jesus, no, Jesus was in fact a human being. Fully human, as Christian orthodoxy says. And as a result of being fully human, this agony in the Garden of Gethsemane was something that he actually experienced as agony. It was real human suffering. He was really going through these emotions. It wasn't a fake thing. That when you make Jesus into God, as many Christians like to do, you actually downplay the humanity of Jesus and particularly the suffering that he might have gone through. And this is relevant for stuff that I was talking about last week, if you recall, for those of you who are here. One of the things I said last week is that the core, the core issue of human nature, the core issue for what it means to be human, is that we find ourselves in our life uh, in periods of estrangement from ourselves, of existential angst and anxiety. We find ourselves in situations where um, we're sort of buffeted by things outside our control. We want to exert control over our life, but we can't. And that causes anxiety. Something comes up that we can't do something with, and that, that might rack us to our souls. Or perhaps we run into the finitude of ourselves. We, we, we run into our finite natures. We're, we're not capable of doing something. Our bodies might be breaking down. We might get lost. We might lose a sense of ourself in the, in the greater collective whole of an identity. Or we might become so obsessed with our own sense of self that we cut ourselves off from others. We're caught in this existential estrangement. Life is not always easy. It's not, it's not settled. And because it's unsettled, we need some sort of deliverance from this, some sort of salvation from this. What Christians proclaim, I argued last week, is that Jesus was someone who was able to overcome this existential estrangement, this division that we find ourselves in, this periods of suffering, Jesus was able to stay united with God and grounded and centered in the midst of the things that life throws at him. And that through that, through participation in that, we can find salvation. Salvation comes from the Latin word salvus, which literally means healing, wholeness. How do we find wholeness? We find wholeness through being rooted in God, as Jesus was able to do. Jesus was... Uh, like God, able to transcend that existential estrangement, but also lived within it. Again, both fully human, living in it and experiencing everything that was about being human, but also being able, like God, to transcend that estrangement and to, to remain united with the ground of being that Jesus and we all sort of have our self, our, like the creativity of God that, that lifts us up. This is the argument I was making last week. And this then brings us to our text this morning for the agony in the garden. Again, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is facing down the fact that he is about to die, and he knows it. That is a scary prospect. Not only is he about to die, he's about to be abandoned and betrayed by one of his closest friends. 
which he knows is going to happen. He knows he's about to be arrested. He also knows he's about to be tortured to death. Not a particularly pleasant sight and publicly humiliated. And as he's there, again, that's why he's praying, I don't want this to happen. He is really experiencing anxiety. It's really assaulting him. And this is significant because we all go through those periods in our own life where that level of anxiety, that soul-crushing anxiety, also hits us. And who knows what form that might take. Perhaps it takes the form of getting divorced from your spouse. And after a divorce, uh, all of a sudden your sense of identity, your sense of who you are changes. Everyone always saw you as a couple, two people together. Now all of a sudden that's not the case. For so long, you had tried to pretend as though everything was good, and so everyone on the outside looked in and said, oh, everything's fine. Then all of a sudden, after the divorce, you had to explain, oh, no, everything wasn't, that, everything wasn't that good. You might have people in your community not know what to do with it, your close friends. Who do you side with, one spouse or the other? Going through the midst of a difficult divorce can be something that rocks you to your core. You had a moment like this agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. A similar thing can happen with a job loss. All of a sudden, you lose your job. Not only do you lose your livelihood, you don't know how you're going to support yourself, but you also also lose your sense of identity of who you are. Our jobs so much shape who we are as human beings. What happens when we don't have that anymore? You have to wake up in the morning and say, well, who am I today? If not the person that I, the the things I've been doing for the past. What am I supposed to do? And then you're in that moment of trying to find a new job, find a new way forward. That can be soul-destroying and crushing if you've gone through it. There's the experience of grief. All of us have had the experience of grief. You lose a parent, you lose a spouse, you lose a child, you lose a close, close friend. The more you love that person, the more it hurts. And sometimes it hurts so much it's paralyzing. You have your moment of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you don't know what to do. This past week, I was reading Henry Nouwen's book, uh, Turning Our Mourning into Dancing. Nouwen opens the book with a story, about, uh, a story about receiving a phone call from a friend of his, a phone call from the hospital, where this friend and his wife had just lost their newborn baby. And the friend had to hold his newborn son in his hands as that tiny child took its last breath. And he was distraught, completely ruined, not knowing how to go forward. These moments happen to us. One of my friends this past week uh, is going through such a time as well. And it's really hard to see him go through that. This is a friend who wanted to be a musician, who music was his great passion. Uh, He wanted to be a percussionist, was going to school for that, and has come to the realization that he didn't have the talent, the drive, or the skills, or that underlying passion to carry on doing it. At the same time, he just ended a two-year relationship where they were actually living together in the same place. And then he told me the other day that one of his friends had actually cheated him out of a large chunk of money, money that he really needed. And he is in a moment of absolute existential angst, of anxiety, of agony in the garden. And I can see him going through it, and there's nothing I can do about it as he suffers. We've all been there. And how do we respond to it? So 
so often we're in these moments uh, in the garden. We try and run away from them. We try and avoid them. We keep ourselves busy. Fill up our tasks. The more things we can do, the more we can hide it. We try and put on a good face. Because again, in our society, we're always supposed to be joyful, right? Power of positive thinking. Oh, if we just put on a good, sh- good show, then everything else will be fine, right? No one wants to see me down and depressed. No one wants to see me vulnerable. I've got to be strong. We do that time and again. But what's interesting is what do we see from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? If Jesus actually is going to be someone who's going to save us, if Jesus actually is someone we should pay attention to, then perhaps Jesus has some sort of answers for us about what we're supposed to be doing. Again, the important thing about the Gospels is that Jesus does not avoid pain. The cross is important in order to try and tell us the suffering of Jesus is important because that's what we go through as human beings too. Jesus isn't much good as a savior if nothing bad happens to him because how is that supposed to save us? But if Jesus goes through those hard times, the same hard times that we've gone through, then there actually is some sort of window open that maybe there's some sort of path forward for when we're in these times of existential angst and anxiety. And what does Jesus do when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? He names his emotions, his anguish. The anguish, as it's described in the Gospel of Mark, is even more severe than it is here in Luke. He names his anguish. He says, God, I really don't want this to happen for me. This is an awful experience. And if we've been through those periods, we know that those are awful experiences, and he names that. But then he says, but God, not my will, but yours be done. There's this moment of self-surrender, of turning things over to God, of somehow finding a recentering in God in the midst of the pain. Does that make the pain go away? No. But it does give him the courage to then do what he does for the rest of the Gospels. He doesn't run away from what his fate is. His followers do, but he doesn't. He's able to do it and face his reality with courage, somehow staying grounded in God by turning over and self-surrendering his life to God. Again, those of you who've, go through a, who've gone through a 12-step recovery process know that that's one of the key elements in a 12-step recovery process is that sense of acknowledging that your, your lack of power and being able to turn that over to a power greater than yourself because you know that you and, your, you and your own can't get through it. Henry Nouwen, uh, for those of you who don't know him, uh, Henry Nouwen, again, this person I mentioned earlier, is this great spiritual writer of the second half of the 20th century, a Roman Catholic. Uh, he, his career was as sparkly and glittering as you can possibly imagine. Uh, taught at all the leading institutions, uh, was a legend wherever he went, constantly in demand as a speaker and a writer. And then, uh, in the mid-1980s, he was burnt out, and he decided to make a change in his life. And he spent the rest of his life living at a community, the large community, a community of people with intellectual disabilities, intellectual and physical disabilities. So this is an intentional, these are intentional communities, religious communities, where people with severe intellectual disabilities all live together in community and pray together in community. And that's where Henry Nouwen, probably the most famous spiritual writer of his entire generation, decided to spend the last 10 years of his life. Because as he, as he writes, he says, when I was there and I saw the way that they dealt with their suffering in life, when they dealt with pain, he said it allowed me to get in touch with my own pain and find true healing. He tells a story in, in, that, in that book that I mentioned earlier 
um, about someone who wrote him about uh, caring for his father who had Alzheimer's. And this person says he went to go visit his father, and his father, who was in late-stage Alzheimer's, when he, when he showed up there, was very agitated. And he kept repeating about how uh, he was concerned about his mother. Now, this person was looking at his father, and again, he'd even, he had never even met his grandmother. His grandmother had died many years before, but this person in Alzheimer's, the only thing he could think about was his mother and being concerned about his mother, and was just agitated to a point where, uh, you know, this son didn't know what to do. But rather than run away from it, he took a deep breath and said, well, let's, let's go for a ride. And so he took his father for a drive in the car. And they drove for about an hour, and as they're going along, he could see his father start to relax more and more and more. And then unprompted after a while, the father said, gosh, hasn't this been such a great visit? Where to be able to step into a place of pain and discomfort and just sit there and let God be present and somehow underneath it all, being able to find some sense of healing. On Good Friday, uh, this Friday that we we celebrate, one one of the lines that's given in Scripture is this, cry of dereliction from the cross, where there's a line from Psalm 22 where Jesus says, uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer is, why has God forsaken Jesus? Because we all go through those moments of forsakenness as well in our own lives. But with Jesus going through it, with Jesus suffering as we suffer, there's a chance to find resurrection on the other side and true healing and salvation. It's not an easy path, but it's a path where we can be grounded with God. That's the message that we get from Scripture from this passage today. In those moments of agony, in those moments of existential angst, in those moments that bring us down to our knees, the solution is not to run away from it as the disciples did. The solution is to be able to sit with it to somehow find God and surrender to God in the midst of it, and even in the midst of that pain, to sit with it and explore and see where the healing can be. We can't control whether bad things happen to us. They happen to us no matter what. What we can control is how we react to that. Do we react to it with souls that are open to God, even as much as it hurts? Do we open it up to see who might come into our lives? What might come next in the midst of these difficult times? God surprises us us with grace that is unimaginable. But we can only experience that grace by going through the cross first. That's how we find resurrection at Easter. Without that passion narrative, without those sufferings of life, without Jesus taking that walk, we can't understand what the empty tomb might mean for us. So in this week ahead, I'd like to invite you into those difficult spaces, that spaces of of anxiety and agony, to think about them as we walk that same path that Jesus did. Show up on Monday, Thursday. Show up on Good Friday. Let's try and do the difficult work of sitting with the pain of Jesus, because I promise you if you do, when we come back next Sunday morning on Easter, you'll be able to really know what that resurrection is all about.